Well, last week we, uh, we began our new series in 1 Thessalonians. And if you remember, um, I proposed that in, in chapter 1, Paul helps us to define the church, uh, which is much like our mission statement, actually. The definition from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that we came up with was that the church is a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. Um, and our mission statement, which is much like it, is that Redeemer Church exists to build redemptive communities of gospel-centered people. And so last week, as we gathered together, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and we just we unpacked what it means for the church to be a redemptive community. We saw that the church is a redemptive community which lives together in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is comprised of those who have been redeemed and are living by faith in God and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we saw that in order to truly live in Christ, we have to live in community. That we can't simply love Christ and not love His bride. And to do so, and we do so, because God is actually the one who established the church. I mean, last time we talked about how God is both the source of our redemption and the source of the community. He's the source of the church. God is the founder. He's the owner. He's the operator and the administrator of the redemptive community. That is the church. This was God's purpose, God's point in establishing that. And because of that, we need to be in community. And as a redeemed community, the church is to be characterized by faith, hope, and love. Not just to be a means by which the gospel goes forth to offer the hope of redemption to people, but also to be a means of redeeming the world to God Himself. And finally, we saw last week that the redemptive community gives evidence to all of those through prayer. That one of the, the, the marks of those who are, who are a part of the redemptive community, who have been redeemed, who are redemptive, is that they are given over to prayer. So that's what we mean when we say the church is a redemptive community. But today we're going to look at the second half of our definition. What does it mean to be gospel-centered people? Well, gospel-centered people always have Christ in focus. They bring the gospel to bear on their lives. They bring the gospel to bear in their relationships. The message of the redemption, of the redemption that they have received in Christ is in their minds. It's on their hearts. It's, in their t- it's on their tongues. They love the gospel. They cherish the gospel. They speak the gospel. They embody the gospel. They center themselves on the gospel. And as a result, their lives and others' lives are changed by it. Basically, gospel-centered people are redeemed believers that can be categorized or characterized with two qualities. They evangelize and they pursue holiness. They share the gospel, and they seek to live the gospel. They walk and talk the gospel. Gospel Gospel-centered people both proclaim it and embody it. All believers are called to this same gospel-centeredness. So how do we get there? How do we become gospel-centered people? How do we live our lives in such a way that the good news of Jesus Christ is the primary focus of our lives? Well, Paul's got some great answers for us in chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. So if you would, go ahead and turn there. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, 
Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth to, from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but, the faith, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concern, um, concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This passage gives us five truths then that help shape our hearts and minds so that we too might be gospel-centered people. And the first one is purely theological. Gospel-centered people are loved and chosen by God. If we're truly going to be gospel-centered people, we must first recognize and praise God because we are loved and chosen by Him. People who centered themselves on the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ realized that the gospel is great news. It's great news because it's something that they cannot earn. It is something that they do not deserve. They acknowledge and praise God that He has shown His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were His enemies, rebelling against Him, hating Him, disregarding Him, at enmity with Him, God loved us first by sending His Son to willingly offer Himself as a substitute for ourselves, for our lives. He lived that life that we could not live, and He gave it up as a substitute for us. He took God's wrath upon Himself, the wrath that was due each one of us. He took it upon Himself. And He was raised on the third day that we might have new life in Him. And gospel-centered people praise God because they've been loved in Christ. They realize that they didn't do anything in that whole uh, through that whole plan, that, that, that unfolding of God's plan of redemption. They did nothing to earn it. But salvation, it's not simply centered in God's love, but in God's loving election. In this passage, verses 4 through 10, is actually Paul's reason why he gives thanks to God from, in verses 1 through 3. He, along with Sylvanus and Timothy, give thanks to God constantly. They mention the Thessalonians in their prayers. They remember their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope from verse, um, in verses 1 through 3 because, he says in verse 4, For we know, brothers, that you are loved by God. Uh, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. He's saying, we give thanks to God, we mention you in our prayers, we remember your faith, your love, your hope, because God of God's loving election of you. That's what he's saying there. I thank God because God has loved and chosen you. This word chosen, it refers to God's loving and sovereign unconditional choice of particular individuals to himself for salvation. That's what it means throughout the Scripture. This 
That, this means that salvation, it, it's not based upon what we do. We don't earn it. We don't seek to meet the conditions of redemption. But it's focused on God's determining to apply His grace to specific people for the purpose of saving them. God predestines them. He chooses them. God elects them apart from anything that they have done. And some people look at love and election as if they're irreconcilable. I've had a number of conversations. It wasn't, in fact, it wasn't that long ago that I had a conversation with a guy that, that came in and he looked at Redeemer and he just could not square God's love with God's election. He, he wanted to say, you know what, if God is love, He can't choose some for salvation and not others. And then there are those that are on the extreme other end of the camp that say, you know what, if God sovereignly chooses some, then He can't love all. But that's never how it's mentioned in Scripture. These are not diametrically opposed, but instead they are inseparably bound. It's God's loving election. It's God's electing love. It's not either God's love or God's election, but God's loving election of us. They go together. They go hand in hand. And if you look throughout Scripture, it's always spoken of, election is always spoken of in, in the most positive of lights. We could see dozens of passages where they go together, but I think Paul is trying to draw our attention in this passage back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, when Moses says to the Israelites that it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you. It's not because you were great, but because you were insignificant that God loved you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and in keeping His oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God chose you. God, God decided to redeem you, to save you, because He loved you, because He elected you, because He had made a covenant with your father Abraham, which, by the way, was an, was an idolatrous, pagan Iraqi. Think about that. Who was not worshiping God. God chose him, made a promise to him, and in order to keep that promise that He made to Abraham, God elects you. God determined to save you, to set His love on you. This is God's act of loving election. You can see God's loving election elsewhere. For example, Romans 8, 28 through 30. It's used as a comfort for Christians. Paul says, and we know that those who love God, that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So take comfort, Christians, in the suffering, in the difficulties that surround you because God is working all those together for good. In Ephesians 1, I mean, you can look at all of Ephesians 1, but just verses 5 through 6, God's electing love is used as a reason to praise God. He says, In love, 
God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of, the will, of His will to the praise of His glorious grace which, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because He chose us before the foundation of the world. I mean, this whole thing is set in... I mean, Paul is just praising God for what he's done. And Scripture even presents election as encouragement to evangelize. Most people think that if you believe in election, you don't evangelize. But that's completely untrue. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He said, I'm willing to take on every affliction, every possible circumstance, because I know that God uses men like me as a means of proclaiming the gospel to bring His elect to salvation. I'm a vessel of God. One of God's chosen one of God's gospel-centered people to go forth proclaiming the good news. This is, this is great. Rather than, than to be debated or despised or lead to depression, God's loving election is a reason to thank God. This is a work that He has done in the lives of all who are truly trusting in Christ. And that's why Paul, right here in 1 Thessalonians, is thanking God. He's praising God. He worships God because of God's work of loving election of His electing love in the lives of these Thessalonians. So to be gospel-centered is to first and foremost understand that we have been loved and chosen by God. The good news is not that you saved yourself by believing in Jesus. The good news is that God saved you in Jesus. See how different that is? That's why we praise God, because of His electing love. And it's that election, that loving election that makes Christianity actually distinct from every other religion. Have you ever thought about that? All other religions are built upon philosophies or moral codes. And if you are to aspire to God, if you are to reach divine, whether through meditation of, of developing a state of mind or by performing certain tasks or certain rituals, by offering sacrifices, you name it, Everything that you do, you're trying to get to God. You're trying to gain God's blessing, to gain God's favor, to gain God's acceptance, to win your salvation. Except in Christianity. And it's because of His loving election of you. In Christianity, instead of you aspiring to God, trying to work your way to God, God comes to you. It says that while you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, because of my mercy, because I am rich in mercy, I made you alive together with Christ. This is reason to praise God. He sent His Son to live, to die, and to rise again. And it's not about what you do for Him, but about what He does for us. God chooses us. God loves us. So Christian worship then is not an attempt to meet the moral demands of God in order to earn His blessing or favor. But instead, worship is truly and purely a response of love to God. 
It is a response. We're motivated because of his love to love him in return. Listen to this. Worship is, some, is not something that we have to do to get to God, but something that we get to do, to do because we have God. I want to say that again. Worship is not something that we have to do to get God, but it is something that we get to do because we have God. And we have Him because He has loved and chosen us. God's loving election is reason to praise God. And this, this loving election, it's not without results. You see, we're loved and chosen for a purpose. God elected us not so that we can stay in the same manner of life, to just go on living as we always did, just now having a stamp of approval, But He elected us not only so that we could be declared righteous, but for our sake He made Christ to be sin when He knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. These are not just cheap words. In Christ we're not only declared righteous, we actually become the righteousness of God. And in fact, the rest of this passage that we're going to look today, verses 5 through 10, our reasons, our support of the first. Okay? They give evidence to, proof that we are chosen and loved by God. So for Paul, these proofs of God's loving election are not have-tos, but they're get-tos and want-tos. And they verify that we are truly God-centered people, or gospel-centered people, chosen and beloved. So therefore, gospel-centered people are not only loved and chosen by God, but second, gospel-centered people embrace the good news in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. The first foundation for Paul's confidence that the Thessalonians are loved and chosen by God is found in verse 5. If you want to look at it, it says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Here Paul is confident that they have lovingly been chosen by God because of the manner in which the gospel came to them. In word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. They're gospel-centered because of the way the good news came to them. It came not only in word, but in the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. It would be easy to look at this verse and then try to directly apply it to the Thessalonians. But it's actually in reference to Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Okay? It's a description, a depiction of them. They, They came not as peddlers of a piece of news, but they came preaching the gospel in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. The Word of God is proclaimed not in empty words, but in truth, with power with absolute assurance, because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at each of these words individually. The first is word. He said, our gospel came to you not only in word. Paul and his companions came to Thessalonica with a message. They were not diviners. They were not magicians. Their goal was not to just do miraculous displays of God's glory. They came with the message. They came with the power the power of God for salvation to all who believe. That's the gospel. They came with the gospel message. They came as heralds of God's power for salvation by preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Power. 
But the gospel came not only in words, but also in power. And here, I don't think that Paul is referring to miraculous gifts or charismatic displays of God's power. Because throughout 1 Thessalonians, and in Luke's account of, of Paul's encounter with, the, with Thessalonica in Acts 17, visible miraculous displays of God's power aren't even mentioned. In fact, every time the power of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, it's always in terms of, of conversion and of sanctification, of God's transformative power through the Holy Spirit to change hearts and lives. The Holy Spirit emboldened them to, to proclaim the message. But it also came with power to see people come to know Christ and to see their lives absolutely changed by it. Full conviction. Paul was absolutely convinced of the truth and the power of the gospel. This deep conviction made him willing to suffer. It made him willing to, to face imprisonments and beatings, to be mocked because he knew that these were true. His deep conviction has made him willing to suffer in order to fulfill the mission of making disciples of all nations. It's his certainty that made him bold to endure all things for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. And his passion for the glory of God gave him confidence and assurance to persevere despite the trials and afflictions that he faced along the way. And then that last phrase, I know it's not last in the text, but it's, it really encompasses all, was in the Holy Spirit. All these were effective because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, the word would have fallen on deaf ears. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no power in preaching or no display of its capacity to transform lives. And without the Holy Spirit, there is no conviction. Without the witness of the Holy Spirit, ours is futile. And this makes me wonder. In fact, I honestly find this convicting. It makes me wonder how differently things would be if we were absolutely assured in the truthfulness of Scripture. It makes me wonder how different our evangelism would be if we came in power if we preach boldly because we were confident, absolutely confident that this is true, that it has the power to change lives. It makes me wonder how things would be different if we were passionate, if we were assured, if we were fully convinced in the truth and the power of the gospel to effect change, to give us what we need during times of, of affliction, in, terms of, in times of trials, as we are faithful to our responsibility to proclaim Christ. And it's a responsibility that's been given to all of us. Each of us, as God's people, are called to proclaim and embody the gospel. It's not just for a few, it's for us all. You know, the reason why I think there are so many, or so few Christians, or so many nominal, so-called Christians, is because we proclaim the most powerful message ever, without certainty, without power, without full conviction, and dare I say, even without the Holy Spirit.
You know, I pray that each of us would embrace the gospel in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. I pray that God would give us a passion for Christ that would so grip our hearts and our minds that we would say like Paul, woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. So the power was evident through their preaching. But the power of the gospel was also evident in the the holiness of their lives. The powerness of of the Holy Spirit was clear in the way that they lived. I mean, look back at the second half of verse 5. He says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I mean, not only did they proclaim the gospel in power, but they also embodied the gospel. Because the truth, the power, the conviction of the Holy Spirit given, or, I'm sorry. Because of the truth, the power, the full conviction in the gospel that was given by the Holy Spirit to Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy caused them to be above reproach. They actually set an example to the Thessalonians in their conduct. They walked the talk. Their lives proved not to be a hindrance to the gospel, but instead they were examples in word, in power, in spirit, and in full conviction. And as a result of that, because they walked it, because they talked it, because they proclaimed it, and because they embodied it, the Thessalonians willingly embraced the gospel. Because they lived it in word, in power, in Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, Because they were gospel-centered, the Thessalonians did the same thing. They too embraced the gospel. Their lives were transformed by it. They became gospel-centered. The word and the example of Paul and his companions naturally resulted in them being imitated. Which leads to the third point. Gospel-centered people become imitators of Christ and the apostles. Verse 6 says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Because Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were gospel-centered, proclaiming and embodying the good news, because the Spirit of God was at work in them through His word, the result is that the Thessalonians became imitators of them and of the Lord. And this is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They were convinced of the truth. They were convinced of the power of the gospel. And it redirected everything. Absolutely everything. They had new thoughts. They had new desires. New pursuits. New ambitions. And a new hope. They were willing to stop following themselves and their own pursuits. And they became imitators. Followers of Christ. And Paul is confident of this because of the manner in which they received the word. He says that they received it in much affliction. To some, the gospel is the aroma of life. They see it, they hear it, they smell it, and they embrace it, they cherish it, they love it. Their lives are transformed by it. But to others, it is the aroma of death. It is repulsive. They hate it. They're hostile to it. And that's exactly what happened when when Paul and his companions entered Thessalonica. The people fell into two camps. Those that loved it and those that hated it. And those that hated it became very hostile. They began rioting. And they began to, to persecute and to afflict Christians. 
They didn't like it because it challenges. The gospel challenges our pride. It challenges our self-indulgence. But these Thessalonians were not detoured by this rising hostility around them. But instead, like Paul and like Christ, they were willing to follow despite trials and afflictions that they would suffer because they were convinced by the Holy Spirit of the truthfulness, of the power, and of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They considered, like Paul, all things lost for the sake of Christ. They were willing to endure it all. But it's not as though they just buckled down and took a beating to receive the gospel. That they just had to buck up and deal with it. Paul also said that they did it with a new attitude. They did it with the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. If you've ever read Galatians 5, you know that joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. True and lasting joy can only be experienced by those who have received the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note that joy is used in reference to three situations in the New Testament. The joy of heaven, from spending eternity in the presence of God. The second joy that that the New Testament talks about is the joy that believers have together as they're in fellowship or as they see one another growing in maturity and growing in Christ's likeness. And the third joy we see in the New Testament, is joy and suffering. It's not delighting in the pain. It's not, it's not reveling like masochistically that we get to be beaten for Jesus. But rather, it's an indestructible hope, a Godward focus, a delight in God that is given by the Holy Spirit that even when these things come, they're not going to detour me. They're not going to take me away from that which has been given to me. I have this great hope, and I I can't hold it in. So beat me if you want to. I'm still going to share the gospel. I'm still going to live the gospel. I'm still going to be changed by the gospel. That kind of joy cannot be quenched. And I'm becoming more and more convinced the true Holy Spirit-given joy in this life as experienced in this fallen, sinful world, can only be experienced through suffering. You know, two years ago, I got to go to India. And I had the privilege of of helping to train pastors and to share the gospel. And if I could describe that trip in one word, that it would be overwhelming. I was overwhelmed by the spiritual darkness. There are 30 or there are 330 million Hindu gods. You could not go anywhere without seeing pictures or little idols where people were bowing down and they were giving them food and they were praying to them and there was chicken blood everywhere. I mean they were it, you, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing this idolatry. I was overwhelmed by the poverty and by the conditions of life there. I was overwhelmed by suffering, by pain, by cruelty, and by hostility that I saw. But you want to know what I was most overwhelmed by? I was overwhelmed by the joy. The joy I saw in the hearts of believers. I worked with guys, pastors, faithful men, who put put me to shame. 
They knew little more than the simple gospel message. But they loved it. They cherished it. And they were willing to suffer anything for it. These guys had been beaten. They had been imprisoned. They had lost jobs. They had lost their home. They had been ostracized from their family, from their community. They had their stuff taken from them. And still, they loved Jesus. They praised Jesus. They had an unquenchable joy and satisfaction and soul-satisfying delight in Jesus. And it was an honor just to be around them. It was a joy just to be there. And I find myself wondering why. Why do they experience that and not us? What's different about their situation and ours? There were only two things I could come up with. One, we're a lot more tied to this world than we think we are. We're slaves to comfort, to entertainment, to ease. We're bound to this world. And the second one, they suffer. They suffer for their faith. And when God bring suffering into your midst, you can guarantee that God will make this promise to you. Your soul will be satisfied. Your heart will delight. Your faith will press on. Because you will have joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. They had become imitators of Christ and the apostles. They had received and were convinced of the truth of God's word. So that these, these momentary and light afflictions could not detour them. Rather, they were filled with joy that comes only from the Holy Spirit. By imitating Christ and the apostles, they proved that they were loved and chosen by God. They confirmed that they had embraced the gospel in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. They had become gospel-centered. Fourth, gospel-centered people set an example in word and in deed. Paul says in verses 7 through 8 that they're embracing the gospel in truth and power and conviction and in the Holy Spirit. Their reception of the world, the word in face of affliction with Holy Spirit given joy as they imitate Christ and the apostles has been so profound that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Their lives have been so characterized by holiness that they became an example to the believers all around them. According to this letter, they were examples in holiness by the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope that they had in verse 3. By receiving the word in, with, in affliction with joy, in verse 6. By turning from idols to serve God and to wait for His Son, in verses 9 and 10. In chapter 3, verse 8, by standing fast in the Lord. In 4, 1, by walking in order to please God. In 4, 9, by loving their brothers in Christ. And in 5, 11, by encouraging and building one another up. But they were not only examples in holiness, they were also examples in word. Paul says that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia. Their faith had virtually gone out everywhere. The Thessalonians were diligent to share their faith with others. They were fervent evangelists. 
If you know anything about Thessalonica, you know that it was a major culture center at the time. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. A Roman highway um, called the Ignatian Way connected Thessalonica to other major cities for trade and for travel. It was a major seaport, a major trade center. So geographically and culturally, the context of Thessalonica would have aided in the spread of the gospel throughout Macedonia and Achaia. It would have served it well. They could easily travel by land or by sea. But not only was it easy to take it to others, but because it was the capital, because it was a major trade center, people would actually come to them. People from every tongue and tribe and nation would come into Thessalonica to do business, to do whatever their lives required, and in the process they could share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with them, without ever leaving their cities. Does this sound familiar at all? It sounds a little bit like our church planting strategy, doesn't it? We, we at Redeemer, we want to be about building redemptive communities of gospel-centered people, i.e., we want to be about planting churches. And we think that the best way to do that is to plant in urban areas or college towns. With urban areas, you see the same effect. People come in, people go out. It's easy to get from one place to another, so the gospel is dispersed. What's the same thing with college towns? College towns transform culture. You know that Urbano... The school district was a pilot school district for taking prayer to schools, right? That's a way that the gospel, the, 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 the beliefs, this culture has, has shaped all of our nation, right? But here, people come to us, and in four to eight years, they typically go out. So we have this great opportunity to share the gospel with them. And this, <clears throat> this strategy was embraced by the, the Thessalonians. Their desire was, was to spread the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission, to transform culture. And, and according to Paul, they were so good at it that as he went out to different places, he actually need not say anything. He would go to places in Macedonia and Achaia, and they would find out that the gospel was already there. It was already present because the Thessalonians had embraced it so much and gone out and told others about it. He said, I didn't even need to say anything. I'm sure that he did, but he didn't need to. It wasn't required because they had embraced the gospel. They had become gospel-centered, both in word and in deed. They were zealous both to proclaim and to embody the gospel. And that gave evidence, again, that they were loved and chosen by God. They were proving that they were gospel-centered by the example that they set in word and in deed. And lastly, Gospel-centered people are characterized by repentance and faith. In verses 9 and 10, it says, For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception that we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't actually have one without the other. True faith is always repenting. And true repentance is always believing. They go together. Throughout Scripture, the command of salvation is given. It says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And here, Paul keys us into the nature of 
of repentance and faith. And the first clue he gives here is reception. I mean, think about this. Think, think about the Thessalonians. What would possess them after hearing that these three men were in Philippi, where they had been beaten, they had been in prison, and they'd just been kicked out, and then suddenly they show up in your town, and instantly rioting starts to break out. People are opposed. It's getting crazy. And your friend Jason, he has to actually go and buy off their opponents to keep them calm. What's going to possess you to receive these men? That sounds like trouble to me. The only way they're going to receive it is not because they receive the men for what they are, but because they receive the message. Not as the words of men, as he says in in chapter 2, but as what they really are, the Word of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they they were able to hear and believe the gospel message so that they were willing to suffer. They were willing to be aligned with these troublemakers. They were willing to be joyful because they had received the Holy Spirit. They heard and received the Word of God. And this led to their repentance. It's not as though they just stood by and said, yeah, I believe that to be true. You bet. Okay. Got to add that one in to the fold. I'm going to include that with all the plethora of these idols that I'm already worshiping. No, it, it resulted in, in completely turning their lives around, in turning from idols. And you can't begin to exaggerate how ex- to the extent this change of allegiance would actually mean. Thessalonica was located 50 miles from Mount Olympus, the home of the Greek gods. They could look out on the horizon and they could see it. They lived in its shadow. The cultural repercussions for them turning from these idols to follow the true and living God was life-changing. To turn to the living God from idols is to say, hey, you know Mount Olympus? Those idols are dead. But God is alive. Those idols that you worship are false. But God is true. Your idols are many. And they look like men. But God is one. Your idols, you make images of them. Which are visible and tangible. But God is invisible, intangible, beyond touch, beyond sight. Your idols are created. The work of human hands meant to reflect the created. But God is the creator of the universe, creator of all mankind. He was not made. He created you. To repent is to turn away from one thing, to forsake it, to give it up, to relinquish it, to hate it, and to love and serve something else. Now, we can't just gloss over this because it's talking about idolatry. You may say, you know what, I don't have any little Buddha in my room. You know, I don't worship Kali or Vishnu. I don't have any images like that that I bow down to. Zeus, I mean, he means nothing to me. You know, Thor, I mean, he's a pretty cool comic book hero, but, you know, but yet... 
flip over a couple of pages in your Bible to Colossians 3, verse 5. Here Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It says the things of this earth, sexual immorality is idolatry. Impurity is idolatry. Passions, lusts, that's idolatry. Evil desires, that's idolatry. Covetousness, that's idolatry. You may not say that you have these little figures in your house, but is every room in, or every piece of furniture in your house pointing towards that little TV in the corner? Little? Maybe big. Maybe big. Mine doesn't have a power button. <laughs> I'm holier than you. <laughs> yeah. We may not go down on the street corner, right, to, to attend the temple, but every time we're hungry, we go down the street corner to get a Big Mac. We may not worship false gods in huge cathedrals, but every Sunday we're gathering over at the stadium to offer praise and worship up to 56 guys who are standing along a line in uniform and helmet. And we, don't worship, we don't worship little figures, but according to Paul in, in Colossians 3, we still are are idolaters. An idol is anything that we place in the throne of our hearts. There is a throne there that is meant for Christ, and anything we put in its place is an idol. That could be ambition, could be success, could be sex, that could be food, that could be the praise of men, that could be wealth, could be our possessions, it could be our family. I mean, you name it, we can put it there. And that's idolatry. And not that all those things are bad. Not that, you know, to be a Christian, to turn from those things is, is not to say, you know, I'm never going to eat. Well, God made you to eat. You need to eat. You know? I'm never going to talk to my family again. No, that's not what it means. But it's to put God first. It's to put Christ first above all those things. Christianity is not asceticism of just denying ourselves every, every good and pleasure in this world, but to do those things, whatever they are, to receive them, giving glory to God. To do those with gospel intentionality. And to be careful about what's really seated on that throne in our hearts. And because we're sinful people, we constantly have to repent. Repentance is not a one-time deal. Okay, I recognize I'm a sinner. Throw up a general repentance, confession of sin, go ahead and pray the prayer, get baptized, good to go. That's not what it's about. Our lives are continually about repenting. The, the more I grow closer to God, the more I find myself repenting. I'm like, and I repent a lot already. I'm like, man, I've got a lot of work to do. I'm repenting all the time, be on my knees. You just get calluses already. But um, <clears throat> So life is one of continual repentance. But the Christian life is also one of continual faith. Paul says that he did not only receive the gospel and repent of their sins, but as a result, they served the living and true God and waited for his Son from heaven. 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. While they wait, they serve God by their faith, their hope, and their love. They worship Him. They share their faith. They care for one another. They gather together in fellowship. They devote themselves to the teaching of God's Word. Their faith is continually displayed as they serve God while they wait for the return of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All Christians believe that He will come again. And so they ready themselves for His return. You know, if you've been through Christianity Explained, verse 10 ought to sound a little bit familiar to you. You should be able to see those three essential beliefs that Christians have to hold about Jesus, right? He says that they wait uh, for His Son, God's Son, from heaven. Jesus is the Son of God. Christians wait for God's Son from heaven. That He has all authority of God. That He is fully God and fully man. We see the cross. That Jesus delivers believers from the wrath to come by offering Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. We all have sinned. We all rebel against God in thought, in word, and in deed. And we place ourselves under God's just and holy wrath. But Christ, the Son of God, came and lived that life that we could not and offered it up freely being nailed to the cross, dying for our sin as a substitute, paying the ransom that our sins deserve. And we also see the resurrection. On the third day, God raised Him from the dead to confirm that He was indeed the Son of God, to verify that God's wrath was satisfied in Christ's sacrifice, and to guarantee that all will rise again and stand before Christ in judgment. Those who reject God will spend eternity in hell. And those who repent and believe will be reconciled to Him. Spending eternity with God in heaven. Now I've got to ask you honestly, where are you? Where are you in this? Have you just used Christianity as a means to eke by? To make it into heaven? Or are you really seeking Him first? Are you, is your desire to place Him first in your lives? Are you, is the gospel transformative? Is it changing everything? Your allegiances? The way that you live? I hope that it does. But if God has been speaking to you at all today, while you've been hearing this, talk to somebody. Talk to me, talk to Caleb, talk to the person next to you. But don't leave here without responding to God's word. If the Holy Spirit's working on you, we're called to repent and believe. And I pray that you'll do that. But just to close up, I want us to look again where we've been. Gospel-centered people are chosen and loved by God. They embrace the good news in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Gospel-centered people become imitators of Christ and His apostles. They set an example of word, in word and deed, and they are characterized by repentance and faith. So we as a church are a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. An assembly that has been redeemed by the gospel. A church that has been united by the gospel. A community that lives in the gospel. 
a body that seeks to fulfill its mission by the gospel. A church that prays the gospel and applies the gospel. A group of people that love the gospel, cherish the gospel, proclaim the gospel, embody the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel. A redemptive community that is transformed by the gospel. I desperately want this to be said of us. I desperately want us to be a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. I don't want to see any one of us eke by, attempting to use Christianity as a means to slide into heaven, that lowest common denominator. But people who set their focus, the focus of their lives, the focus of their minds, the focus of their hearts on the gospel. And as a result, man, how would he change us? May we truly be a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for your word. We praise you for what you have done in Christ. That even before the foundation of the world, you have loved us and chosen us and applied your grace to us, bringing us to salvation through Jesus Christ. God, we don't deserve that. We haven't earned that. We can't even begin to attain to that. So God, I pray that our response would really be one of praise and of worship, and that we would realize that it demands our life, our soul, our all. That we would not come to Christ trying to barter with you to get what we want. But realize that Christianity is about you and your will. God, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for the idols that we have placed in our hearts. God, I pray that we would turn from them and follow you. That we would love Christ more than anything. That he would be our hope. He would be our treasure. He would be our life. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen.